Welcome to the Birth Journeys Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Hoff, BSNRN. I am a wife, a mother of two, and a nurse specializing in the care of women and newborns. In this podcast, we will share powerful journeys of birth givers with the goals of lifting the veil on the birth experience, healing through sharing, and beginning an open conversation to strengthen trust and promote transparency between birthing people and healthcare providers. Hello! Today I have with me Mary Wilcox-Smith. Mary is the mother of four and a parenting coach. For the past 25 years, Mary has appreciated the pleasure of experiencing the joys and, yes, the tribulations of raising four daughters born within the span of just five years. Her micro-step method equips the overwhelmed parent with the understanding and tools to transform everyday parenting struggles into opportunities for moments of meaningful connection. Mary is here today to share her birth stories with us. Mary, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, I am so excited to hear about how you managed four children in five years. (laughs) That sounds really intense. And also, we're going to be talking a little bit about your book, that is officially launching and will be launched by the time my listeners hear this podcast. So we'll talk about how they can have access to that. And I will have all that stuff in the show notes. So Mary, tell me when you decided to start having kids, how did that look for you? And how did it go? So that's a, uh, it was interesting when we first talked about your podcast, because we made a joke because I thought you meant my birth story. And (laughs) I don't know that I've sat down. There was a lot that happened with all these kids' births, right? So when I sit down Mm -hmm. and think of it as as one instead of individual experiences, it's sort of interesting because, you know, you do see how much we bring to the story, to their birth story. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we're there, but so much of what we're doing and how we work and how we function in our trauma is all related. So the way I am, I had my own trauma as a child and I grew up sort of I was the fourth of five. I was a half brother. And there was some significant trauma, like enough so that, you know, it didn't always feel safe in my house. And I was a perfectionist. So I went 110 miles an hour. I succeeded at everything. I looked like the model child. And I sort of assumed that parenting would be the same and having children would be the same. And I'm pretty social. I'm, you know, I have an easy, I can talk to a tree. I'm educated, right? So I assumed kind of because you know, I could get along with other people and sort of I got to a point in my family was like, okay, they're dysfunctional. I'm out of here. It's going to be fine for me. And it's just not the case, right? We come to parenting with our baggage, our childhood baggage slung over one shoulder and sort of clutching what we think are a handful of tools in the other hand. And my toolbox was pretty empty when it came time where I really, really needed them. So I didn't plan a lot for children. And, you know, I'm very much someone who kind of does so I wouldn't say we planned. I knew I would have children, but I sat with someone one day when I was at business school and she was like, oh yeah, I'm going to get out of business school and we work for this many years and then I'm going to get married and then I'm going to have 2.5 children. And then I was like, wow, you're really planned. And that was really not my way. And so I met my husband in business school and we ultimately ended up in New York. We got married and we moved to Argentina and I got, so my first pregnancy was because we got married. And literally I had a friend who said to me, sort of like, Mary, you're 35. You should start trying because we tried forever and I couldn't get pregnant. I was like, oh, that's a possibility. I can't get pregnant. Well, it better start. So, so like no planning. So, and I got pregnant right away. 
and I miscarried my first. I was on a skiing holiday. I was trying not to ski, which was really depressing for me. And uh, because I ran my own ski holiday company in the Alps, I'd done a lot of skiing in my life. I was really sad. It wasn't skiing. But I miscarried. And that was, I don't know, that carries its own trauma, I think. And then just moved on from that. Went to Argentina. Got pregnant very easily again. And in Argentina, I was sort of consulting. I was working. But life, I don't know, my schedule was pretty easy and had a great pregnancy. I worked up. I, you know, I, I played golf till I think a week after I was due. They're a very, very friendly child-centered culture, the Argentines. And um, so I had a wonderful doctor. And it's just, a, I don't know, they're sort of child-centric. So they, it was, it was sort of, it was an easy place to be. So I had this amazing pregnancy. And when she was born, it was pretty straightforward. It was different than the States. The doctor was a chain smoker. And she would be like, she'd be like trying to get this baby out. And then they would take like a 15 minute break and she'd go out and have a smoke and come oh back in. It's sort of funny. And I guess they were trying to like, I'm, I, you know, this I'm sure they would never do in any of these home births you talk about. And I'm sure they don't even do it in hospitals mm-hmm. here, but they were kind of trying to push the baby down to get her out. And, um, you know, I didn't know any better. <clears throat> and so, and I had all the anesthesia and everything because again, I knew no better. The Argentines are also people who are like, they don't want any pain, right? So they're right. going to look after themselves. The moms are going to look after themselves. They, you know, there's a lot of, it's a sort of a culture where there's a lot of people with maids. So, you know, the parent doesn't suffer as much. You're having someone who helps you all the time. Parent always suffers. But as a mom, you have a lot of support. So then Marina was born and I think it was, she was born at maybe 1158, but they put 1202 on the birth certificate so that I could have an extra night in the hospital. And the hospitals were in were like hotels. They were so nice. The hospital that I was in was so nice. I think I had a single room. Anyway, it, it all went swimmingly. So that birth, because we sort of stop after the birth, right? She came out. She was perfect. They phoned me to ask if I wanted to shave her head and give her earrings. I said, no, I kind of wish I had, because that's what you do in Argentina. You shave their heads because they want their hair to grow in better. And little girls get ear pierces. So you get that phone call right away because I'm not a planner. I hadn't even thought about whether I was going to do that, but I was like, I don't need to do that. She got no hair until she was three anyway, so we didn't even need the shave. But it was sort of all perfect. She came out easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to bottle feed her a little bit because I couldn't quite get the breastfeeding. I mean, had I had a, had I had a, someone teach me better, sure, that would have worked. But it was all very joyful. I stressed about the lack of feeding. I stressed about the sleeping. I stressed about everything. But I would say... If we talk about when she was born, that moment was amazing and she was perfect. I think a lot of people have that experience. I think a lot of mm-hmm. births, I think the majority of births, kids come out healthy yeah. and it's sort of this amazing experience. So my second daughter was completely different. And so therefore the next two were completely different too, because yeah. I went into having a child the way I'd done the rest of my life. I do it all right. And I show up. I'm a pretty good person. They can like fix something in the last five seconds if I need to. And I just assumed it would all be fine. So with Catalina, they did not know if I'd been in the States, I think they would have known there was an issue. There was some question that they might've known there was an issue, but you would have had to have a level two ultrasound. I don't know why they would have given me one. What are we trying to catch? Trying to catch lung dysfunction, lung, not Uh, normal growth, lung growth. And they do catch it. You catch it. it, It's sort of caught. She, she has a bunch of different things, but they call it CCAM and she, mm-hmm. they would have caught it with her. 
-hmm. it could have made a, it would have made a difference because I would have come to the States to have Mm -hmm. the Argentine medical system is amazing, but I probably would, I would have been in a place that had ECMO, for example, and they didn't have ECMO, but she was. Mm, Okay. So like you'd need a level four NICU. I needed a level four NICU and their level four. I don't know if that was level four, whatever they had, they did not have ECMO. They had everything ECMO else. Is level four. So and I like would have that's brain the one. cooling and all that stuff. Yeah. So that's what I would I would have been in level four. So I'd had this amazing experience with the first one. Went into the second one thinking it would be similar. I, you know, I exercised. I sort of was fine. I got pregnant right away because it was so easy, and it all went so well that she was only fifteen months younger than the first. And I, with her, was up the whole night before. I I tended to organize. I definitely got that organizing thing when I was pregnant. And yeah, (laughs) the nesting. And I would do, I remember the whole night, like redoing all my files, like everything and, you know, putting labels on everything. And I was up the whole night because I was having contractions. And then I went in and I had the same doctor and we had upgraded our room. Because you could upgrade your room in Argentina. And we had such an amazing experience. We were like, let's just pay for a slightly nicer room and be there for two nights. Like, it's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we had a single room in this, with the Mendy. What's the name of the hospital? It's a great hospital. First one was also a great hospital. Trinidad, they're both really good. And I then phoned them early in the morning. So she was sort of a nine o'clock birth. I mean, I told you it was middle of the night. Second one was Mm -hmm. sort of an early morning birth. And I went in. And it was sort of all fine until she came out. And I didn't realize it right away, but my husband realized right away. And she wasn't, he just realized something was off. They quickly put her on me, but then took her away. Mm -hmm. So they give you like a, I don't know what they do in the States, but they gave me like a quick hold and they took her away. And then we didn't hear anything for hours. Oh. Definitely a few hours. And that maybe not a few. It was a pretty long time, actually, though. I just, I mean, I'm sure they said the baby's here, but you know, like we knew something was wrong. The baby was nowhere, right. right? So we were obviously nervous. And then the doctor came and saw us, and he was a doctor who had trained in the United States as well. His name was Doctor. It's very funny because his name was B. Period. Prudent. That was the name, Doctor Luis. Luis B. Prudent. Well, that's the kind of doctor. That's what you want as your neonatologist, someone who is prudent. Prudent. So he came to me and said, they came to us and said, you know, there's an issue and they start to explain it and you're trying to sort of take it in, right? There's something wrong with her lungs. There's there's something pushing on her lung. We think we need to do surgery. We have her on, a, you know, I think she was already on a high frequency. So she was on a high frequency ventilator already, not oxygen, mm-hmm. high frequency. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of explained that. I mean, it was a little bit meaningless to me at the time because I hadn't mm-hmm. learned that much about it yet. But so she was definitely in the, in the NICU and would stay in the NICU. I would be able to see her at some point, but they wanted to do this surgery. And so I think then they, you know, they rolled me down to see her. We couldn't touch her or anything that or anything yet. She was the biggest child in the NICU. She was, she was like 8.2 pounds. Wow. And in a, or in the NICU that she was in, I mean, my, my, my close friend who became my close friend because her child was in there and needed a trach and stuff and was a preemie was, I think four pounds. Mm-hmm. She was twice the size mm-hmm. of of these other of these other babies, and um, but she was probably the sickest one in there. So she was on high frequency. So if, you know, if you look at a picture of her, you know she's sort of lying on her back, and she's got you know you said 
It's a very big a- apparatus that comes to her, and she doesn't really have the energy to move, so she just lies on her back. It's, it's really kind of frightening to see. It makes me sad. So then you go, what we went into, I think, you sort of go into a mode, and oftentimes the husband has a little more than the wife, but you go into a mode where you're, when you have someone that sick, where you're really watching the statistics, you're watching the numbers, you're watching, yeah. there's just all these stats that you're watching of how is she doing? Can she do this? Can she do that? This is where she is. You know, this is how we're putting a feeding tube in her. This is her weight. So I can't even remember all the things, but because if your baby's born healthy, you're worried about, are they eating? Are they sleeping? Are they pooping? Right. And if they're in the NICU, it, it, you don't have those same worries. So you're focused on these other things. And so then you start having these conversations with the doctors and your level of understanding and your breadth of knowledge jumps up significantly. And then she needed surgery. So then you're sort of praying for her to get through surgery, you know, at four days old. So then she gets through surgery and then you're thrilled about her getting through surgery. And then you're doing this. And then you're, there were these numbers and you must know better than me, but with that high frequency, the high frequency ventilator, which I guess your listeners wouldn't know, but the high frequency ventilator is basically... It's a child with lung issues, so she was born with sort of lungs that aren't very good. It's 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 giving her oxygen without moving her body very much. Mm-hmm. So it's keeping her as still as possible. And that's why an ECMO machine turns everything off, like turns everything off so and keeps you alive. So that is the one thing that he might have, the doctor might have wanted that they didn't have, would be to put her in ECMO just to let the body rest because she was working so hard. But he said, and we had conversations with people in the States and stuff, but he said, like, he didn't want to send her somewhere to go to ECMO because he would, she would go out of his care and he wanted to have her care. And I would say they did a great job. So she had a normal, normal thorax at birth, right? Well, she had very, very bad lungs. The pneumothorax okay. is very fixable. They put a tube in right. and that's the normal, her lungs are, are malformed. What so was the d- official, did they call it? They, they, they never really, we still haven't really called it anything. We've called it displast, hmm. dysplastic lungs because they don't have the plasticity that other lungs do. Hmm. She doesn't have a cerebral palsy. I mean, she, she had mild cerebral palsy at birth as well that she still has a bit of, but because you can't see it as much. Mm-hmm. That happened because of the lack of oxygen, exactly. But she, her brain, thankfully, is, she's very, very sharp. She just graduated from you know, um, University of Virginia. She's very bright. But her lungs were such that she, that if you looked at them, you would just think she'd be on oxygen her whole life. So they're sort of malformed. So it's the, so the pneumothorax was important in that moment, but it, that required a two. I mean, if that's all she'd had, yeah. like, great. Yeah, you um, need all the other stuff. Yeah. It's all and the other stuff. that's just a minor procedure or not minor. No, not but relative to, to what she had, it's relatively right. minor. And later on, we were with her in the room when she had stabilized quite a bit and was on the room air. And in front of her eyes, she had a pneumothorax and they sort of sent us out. So she said, she's actually had two. But anyway, so they didn't, so they did a surgery on day four and that went very successfully. So with her lungs, what the doctors were looking for at a certain point was lung growth by the age of two. That was our next big step. And then that's way past our birth story. And she didn't quite have that lung growth that we wanted. So we dealt with that ever since. But the birth itself, incredibly traumatic. So she did a course this year and had to write a poem about her birth. So she came to me and said, what is my birth story? And to have her write it is really, it's just amazing because from her, you know, the way she writes the poem is sort of, you know, to, to have done everything. She starts it out by saying like to have done everything right, preparing for this marvelous night. But she then says, you know, only to foresee a fight that takes so much might. 
is a sorrowful sight, which I just thought was like, which works for both the parent and the child, right? Because you just imagine. Take your time. Clearly haven't gone through this trauma. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that, it, it, so that it applies to both parents and to the child if something goes wrong at birth, because you're, yeah. you're just, mad. it's like a birthday party gone wrong. Because 90%, whatever, you know the number better than me, but it's an enormous percent of the time with people living in the middle of nowhere with yeah. no medical care, babies come out fine. Yeah. And so it's just so unanticipated. And then, I mean, also for the little thing that's born, because it's just supposed to be kind of easy. You're supposed to come out and be able to breathe and be able to eat. Yeah. Like it's this, you know, it's really sort of, it is marvelous and incredible. So what I was going to say, though, that really doesn't take away from any trauma that someone has just breastfeeding, because it's only relative. Right. Because our natural instinct is to want the best for your child. Are you pregnant and planning a hospital birth? You don't need a birth plan. You need a birth vision. In my opinion, birth plans set you up for failure. Yep, I said it. Hear me out before you turn off this podcast. You may think that by downloading a generic birth plan, it means you're in control. The truth is it's not that simple. No one can control exactly how their birth will go. There are way too many variables. What every pregnant person wants is to walk into the hospital pregnant and to walk out with a healthy newborn in their arms. The journey in between is the murky part. It's hard to know what issues might come up that need to be addressed. If you focus your energy on a birth vision rather than giving your power to a birth plan, you can empower yourself to make the best choices for you and your baby. That's why you need to get into my Empowered Hospital Birth Program. As a labor nurse and mindset coach, I can help guide you through the process of maintaining the calm autonomy that will help you achieve the birth vision you desire. In my Empowered Hospital Birth Program, I will help you identify the source of anxiety you have surrounding hospital birth, fill in knowledge gaps to make sure that you are fully informed and confident, learn key phrases so you can better communicate with your medical team, emotionally process your fears so that they don't hold power over you. Go to kellyhoff.com backslash empowered to book a free 30-minute private birth vision call where we will identify your top fears and must-haves and gain clarity on exactly how you want to feel in the birth space. That's K-E-L-L-Y-H-O-F dot com backslash empowered. I'm honored to be a part of your birth journey. You just want the best and you expect the best and when it goes wrong, it's just surprising and traumatic. So following that was, you know, that whole year was hard. The child was tube fed. She went to room air at three weeks of age, you know, probably go, you know, just because of where she was had way more maybe x-rays than she would have had in the States. They would have known some of that a little bit better, but the, the medical facilities were very good, but ended up being tube fed for years, going back into the hospital for a long time because she wasn't gaining weight. So just she had a lot of, a lot of trauma. And so I, at that point was 36. And I think the third birth story is kind of funny because to be honest, I'm not sure there was a lot happening to create children. <laughs> not sure who's listening to the podcast, but there was not a lot happening with my husband and I that whole year because life was just so busy. And she was in and out of the hospital constantly and in the hospital for three months here and three months there. So it was very busy. And so literally I, at New Year's, I got pregnant, you know, which 
arguably might have been the first time we had sex like in a year. I mean, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it wasn't a conscious attempt. It was not a conscious choice. And also, I think I'd been breastfeeding. So there was an assumption that I wouldn't mm. get pregnant. And I stopped breastfeeding when she went into the hospital at nine months of age. Mm-hmm. And then because she had to be tube fed because she just wasn't gaining enough weight. And so now I was pregnant with a third. And with her... Like that pregnancy went pretty well. I think I got, life was busier, right? So I wasn't exercising maybe as much, probably wasn't sleeping as much. Um, So I had more swelling. I felt some of that coming on, gained a little extra weight. In Argentina, they like you to gain 20 pounds. It's all about the woman looking good. It's just so mm-hmm. different than the States. But all it's all about like, like you would gain too much weight and the doctor would be like, ooh, you know, I shouldn't be gaining that much weight. In the States, it's very different. So I'm sure I gained more weight. So towards the end, I had, you know, some swelling I remember not liking. But with her, I literally was like driving my kid to ballet practice. I can't be right because she was born only two years later. And she might have been young. Oh, no, they they wanted to schedule her because the guy was going golfing or something, right? So he didn't want to have it. It wasn't it, it wasn't that it needed to be scheduled, right? It wasn't a medical reason. <laughs> it was, not, And I was like, I'm not scheduling a birth for my child. Like, this is ridiculous. Right. You can send in whatever. So she came fairly close pretty much close to the date that she was supposed to. Catalina, the second one was 41 weeks, really close. Marina was a little bit later. She came, the you know, the classic kind of two weeks later, the first. This one came pretty close to the date, but I literally was dropping someone somewhere and, you know, had contractions and had to kind of rush to the hospital. But I went in and they immediately gave me painkillers. And I, you know, I'm not, I, again, I hadn't really thought it through. I was in a hospital with a level four because my whole focus for my third child really was none of the fun stuff. It was really just, I want to be in a place where I know that they have a NICU. Mm -hmm. So it changes the experience significantly. Yeah. Because I know people talk about being nervous about Mm -hmm. birth, but it's very different from being nervous about having a child who really has very, very significant issues. And, you know, the lead up doesn't, didn't, I mean, I was excited, absolutely. But it, the lead up is just different because your focus is very different. It's, yeah. And, you know, to the extent that, and I, and I know you have, you have an interesting group out there that, so I have nothing again against home births, but they make, you know, and I think that's why you say you have to, you have to pass certain criteria to have it at home mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. after I'd had my child, and then I came back to the States where there was sort of more of a push for sort of, you know, in the, in the natural world. And it was like, there's no way I am not going to be in a hospital. So for those, I guess I want to say to anybody who's thinking I should, I want to do it in a hospital, but I'm feeling this pressure to be natural. Like There is no harm to saying I want to be in a hospital. And you can have a birth and it can be beautiful and you can push the whole way and decide not to have painkillers. And you just have a backup there. And I know that there are backups with home births too, but you yeah. can have a backup there and you can feel very, can feel very, very good about that. I think it's empowering to know that you have options too. Yeah. And, and not to feel bad. I guess it's just options. not to feel badly. Yeah. Right. Because it, it is a stronger push for people who are like, oh, well, you should really breastfeed until you're this age or, oh, you know, you wouldn't do it naturally. Like, oh, do you know what I mean? There's, mm-hmm. Because they are more well, married to their business. thoughts. They are. Because, yeah. Well, I guess I say that because those thoughts have come from a place of real passion. So that the is push is harder. Right. With those of us like me who are like, oh, I'll just go to the hospital because that's what they told me to do, right? Yeah. I don't, I'm not out there advocating that. Yeah. And so I guess I just want to say that, right? There is nothing wrong with choosing that. And right. 
you should feel good about that. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. And if you choose birth that you want to have it on a certain date, that's okay. And yeah. It, right. I picked my son's birthday. And you picked your son's birthday. And so you can, <laughs> and the most important thing really is to enjoy the moments that are good because you don't really know what's around the corner. And so just exactly. enjoy every, if the, if the piece of enjoyment is the five minutes that you've gotten a spinal and it doesn't hurt, enjoy that. Right. Yeah. And I, with this one, I went in and my husband and I were sitting in this room and they'd given me a spinal because I was in so much pain when I went in and I didn't really ask for it, but I didn't really, again, my focus wasn't. no either. Well, my focus wasn't having a home natural birth, right? Because that's just not where I was. So they immediately gave me a spinal and I felt a sort of, I kind of regretted it in a way because I wanted, right? But then we were laying there and I felt fine. I literally, I was like, why don't you go get me some M&M's? So if you had got some M&M's and the, guy, the doctor came in, like the nurse came in, like, what are you doing eating? You're not allowed to eat. That's funny. <laughs> and so, so her birth, she came out, she was big, nine pounds, nine ounces. So what I remember about her is just in Argentina, they pushed them out. And in this case, they didn't, but she definitely came out hard. She came out bruised and mm. jaundiced. And um, everyone came in like, oh, your baby's beautiful. And we were like, oh, no, we've had beautiful babies. This is not a beautiful baby. <laughs> this one is pretty beat up. <laughs> this one is pretty beat up. So that to me was sort of uneventful. I mean, she was, she came out healthy. She had jaundice. I know, you know, I remember that. Well, with all that bruising, that's to be expected because that's the breakdown of blood cells that causes jaundice. Oh, so there you go. So, so she, she was, was probably at higher risk. But, you know, she was healthy. And so yeah. the joy of that in and of itself was great. And so I just remember laying her in beanbags so that she would get the sun and having to take her to have her poor little heel poked, right? Which is no yeah. fun having her heel poked, but compared to what I've been through is really like, she's having a heel poked. Right? I'm like, probably brought tears to my eyes because it does. But yeah, well, that's not to negate the trauma of all the, the little things too. Because I remember, I mean, I'm a nurse. I poke baby's heels, but when my son's heels were getting poked, that was a different story. Yeah. And I know, I see the stuff that can happen but it's different when it's your own kid. So being able to validate that experience for everyone, especially since you've been through all of it and to be able to validate every experience for yourself as well. I think that's important because everybody's trauma and everybody's hardships are valid. Just because somebody else went through something bigger doesn't invalidate your experience. No, not at all. And so, and I'm sure I did have tears. I get, you hate when your baby gets poked and they cry. It's like, it feels so mean. But but the fact that I could just hold her and walk around the house, like that was just robbed the first child. Like it was, I mean, she went to bed with gloves on her hands and tubes in her nose. And like, it was hard. And I had to put tubes into her so that, and I wrote it, I have an article in the Huffington Post coming out soon. And I I was writing something about special needs kids. And it was my introductory paragraph was sort of, you know, the joys of having children is, you know, there's so many moments of just unheralded joy. And um, I remember when she first took her bite of food at six months, the third child, and she just took this bite and swallowed it. And and I cried and it wasn't tears of joy. It was tears of my other child who was hellish. And she's, you know, she still has some issues, right? But to getting her to eat because she'd been tube fed, it just was so hard. And so there's these moments that are just such gifts that we don't always realize, right? 
Yeah. Because so much happens. You know, the kids are so, they're just so capable and they do so much on their own. Mm-hmm. And then, so then to the fourth one. So then I was nearing 40 and now I've had three kids in four years or something. And I can't um, even imagine. <laughs> I'm stressed out for you. <laughs> and life was crazy because I have a child who's tube fed, who's yeah. in and out of the hospital. I'm quarantining my kids because she can't get sick. So nobody's going to school. We don't have play dates in the winter. We don't do anything because, you know, you know, not people have their best friends are these people that they go hang out with when their kids were young. And I wouldn't do it because number one, I, one child couldn't just eat. So I had to be home for to feeding, but I didn't want them to get sick. So from September till March, I wouldn't want to be anywhere. And, uh, yeah, it was like my own little COVID. But then I, to be honest, I was a little afraid. There's a real fear that this child, the second child might not make it. Like she, the doctor gave her a 50-50 chance when she was little. And so somewhere in my head, I was like, wow, they don't have two children. Like I, it was somewhat subconscious because I didn't really want to think about it, but I sort of did. And I was like, if I'm going to get pregnant, I have to do it now because I'm almost 40. And so I made this decision to get pregnant and I got pregnant and I was so embarrassed. I was like, how can I tell anybody I'm pregnant? My life is so hard. You know, I was like, it felt like one of those people that already had eight kids and having a ninth. Although those people are usually totally laid back and they leave it all to their kids and they're totally relaxed, right? I'm a total type A, nervous, trying to control everything. And I really, like, I remember calling my friend and being like, I am really, don't want to tell people that I'm pregnant. I'm literally embarrassed. And then my whole family got sick. Everybody had the flu. I had some babysitter who was sick as well. And the one who gets sick, it goes straight to her lungs. She has to be nebulized every four hours. She has a special machine that hits her lungs. Like, it's really hard when she's sick. You have to go to the doctor. Like, if I call the doctor, the doctor gets on the phone for her. Like, and I had run out of my thyroid medication and you need thyroid medication. Especially if you're pregnant. Especially if you're pregnant. And I was trying to, fo- I was in the middle of maybe f- switching doctors. So I was trying to, f- and it had been more than three months. And I was trying to phone the doctor and just get a prescription. And no one would just give me the prescription without an appointment. But for some reason, maybe my insurance wasn't taking that doctor anymore. So I just switched the doctor. I should have just gone to the pharmacy and asked for the medication mm-hmm. and then paid for it. And then I figured it out. But I didn't even know that was an option. Right. Mm, I didn't either. I thought you had to have a prescription for it or like it wasn't. You know what? And maybe I would have, but she might have given me three days worth. Like, who knows? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, some of my best memories are when my daughter was sick and I mean, when she was really sick and I was feeding her like these awful like lipid protein fats through her yeah. tube to try to get her to gain enough at two ounces so she didn't have to be hospitalized when she was six months old. I'm trying to feed this stuff or give it to her. Here. She wasn't even tube fed yet. So I don't know how I was trying to give it to her, but I was trying to get it down her. And I couldn't get the stuff on time. And so I called Johnson & Johnson. I'm like, I'm supposed to order this stuff. I don't even know where I'm supposed to. And you know that I would have had that panic in my voice. And the woman like overnighted me a case of it. Wow. And never charged me. And it was like those moments wow. happen where you know that someone just hears how like how scared you are. It was a, mm-hmm. it was one of the sweetest things. And I never even said thanks to the woman because I know she was. But you know, they hear it in your voice, right? And whatever. Whoever I was talking to about my thyroid right medicine, I was not getting it across. So I literally <laughs> go to the doctor's appointment with my kids and the nebulizing machine because I don't know how long it's gonna be. And at that point, I only had big ones. I didn't even know. No, I think I have a, I'm carrying a feeding tube because she's eating 24 hours a day and I'm petrified to stop it. And I follow all the rules and like, I have a nebulizer going. 
because you go to a doctor's office, you know how long you're going to be there. She has to be nebulized every three hours, right? And that doctor saw me and just thought to herself, who does this woman think she is being pregnant? And she said something like to me, like, you've missed your thyroid medicine and your kid has a ch- chance of being born mentally retarded. Wow. And so That's now I take that on. And I think also I'd had an x-ray for something and they'd had, or probably Catalina had an x-ray and I probably stood behind something. And so I was also worried that I'd been, that the x-ray had done something to me because I'd heard something then afterwards and I didn't mention it to anybody because I was too, I was ashamed. I was scared, you know? And so I'm thinking, okay, so now I'm going to have a child whole host of issues. Yeah, she wasn't born until September, and that was probably, you know, March or April. So I just sat on that, which is probably also not good for your fetus. And I was petrified. And I might not have told anyone until after she was born because, but I think I, my husband took me and literally like we were in traffic Mm. and it was like, I'm going to have this baby. (laughs) And we're like, I remember yelling out the window, would you let us buy? Like, I've got to get to the hospital. And my husband was like, oh, my God. I'm pointing to your belly. <laughs> it's totally. I'm going to do this on the side of the road if you don't move. <laughs> totally. And we got to the hospital and that had the same doctor that had delivered the previous one. And this time he was on some. Maybe that was the one. I, don't know, I think he wanted to schedule that one, too. Anyways, he was on his golf holiday. And so we went. My husband let's parked the car illegal, you know, in the wrong spot. Mm-hmm. We went in. And I went pretty quickly into the birthing room. Mm-hmm. And again, I got an epidural and I think I didn't really want one and couldn't get that out and whatever. But it, but there <laughs> was so much talk. pain at that point. It wasn't like stopping it. Or maybe I said, don't give me much or something. Do you know what I mean? I was like, mm-hmm. but it, I could have absolutely done a natural. I mean, at that point, I was already basically having birth, right? Right. Well, when you're that far, the epidural won't cover pressure necessarily, especially if it's like it, with pain control, you have to get it under control before it's out of control. Otherwise, you're not going to get back. So control. I think they did something so that made no difference. And happened. I was kind of like irritated that they'd done it, right? It, yeah. But again, I wasn't, I just didn't take the time to plan it. And I think probably with my own trauma, I just, I don't know. I didn't want to think about the births. I didn't like, you know what I mean? It was sort of crossing my fingers and hoping for the best type of thing. Even, even though I should have been, you know what I mean? It was sort of just my way of dealing with it. So then I get in there. And my husband's like, I got to go move the car. <laughs> Can you hold on? Right? So Please don't have this baby right now. Okay, let's don't have this baby. <laughs> so a, the, a doctor comes in who I don't know. He goes to get the car. And the next thing I know, they like want to break the water to get the baby coming. So the doctor's sort of coming at me with this, you know, the I'm making a hook. signal of something in my hand <laughs> that looks like a long knitting needle. Right. Yeah. And and the nurse says, no, can, you know, and I say, can we wait for my husband? And he keeps coming. And the nurse is like, can we wait? And then it's like, can we wait five minutes? Because the husband's like, of course, the guy's got one eye and he oh can't my gosh. hear. But what was interesting for all those moms out there, had it been a first, had it that been my first child, I would have panicked and thought, like, who's done this to me? Right. And I can imagine yeah. some people in my area where I live being like, we're not using this doctor. Are you crazy? Get me a doctor that, you know, doesn't have a patch on an eye. can hear me. Mm-hmm. And for me, I was like, this guy has delivered thousands of babies. Yeah. I am so unconcerned because mm-hmm. he can do this with his eyes shut. 
And and <laughs> it was so it's just it's so interesting your perspective because that was not mm-hmm. my worry. If something was wrong, going to go wrong, I was in this hospital. If anything goes wrong, we are covered, mm-hmm. right? And so it was so not my worry. It's just interesting, right? Because for someone else, that would be a really big worry. And so then he waited and then that baby also was nine, nine and just pounded her way out. Like, you know, bruised, (laughs) jaundiced, nine pounds, nine ounces. Wow. Yeah. So with her that, you know, the the story that I tell her is more the sort of getting stuck in traffic. The third one is the M&Ms and the relaxedness (laughs) coming out. And with this one, and then she came out and I was just trying to look for that. You know, you may have a child born who's got developmental. Oftentimes there is a facial giveaway, right? Mm-hmm. And well, so- yeah, especially if it's a uh, chromosomal issue, there's this something is- that can physically be noticed as well. Right. So all I was looking, you know, so I was thrilled to have this baby, but the moment was also stolen from me by that doctor because yeah. I was look. I mean, yes, of course I loved it. And there was this little baby and you feed her and, you know, I mean- I remember all of that, but what I most remember is like, can she latch on? Is she, is she going to be okay? And is it a developmental milestone? Like, I just remember those first three or four months, like looking for clues that she was okay. And I remember finally, I think it was in some marriage counseling, not surprising at, you know, after number four, we were after four kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After speaking to someone. (laughs) And I remember sharing that story of that doctor saying that and my husband being like, that is medical malpractice. Because to tell somebody that that to definitively there's going to be a repercussion for your child, that's awful. It, you don't know that. I mean, it it was awful. It was awful. And she's fine. A little bit of ADD. But she probably gets that from me environmentally. I was going to say, she probably comes by that honestly. <laughs> she got, that's the word I was looking for. She comes by that honestly. Um that's where my kids are at, and I know where they got it from. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so they have all four. But I will say, you know, I, each time that moment, and I, it's funny that I don't, after that first one, I don't remember it as much, probably because it's busier, right? Because you've got four. And there was other lovely moments where the kids are excited about the other kid, or the eldest one wants to constantly touch the soft spot on the little one. And I'm like, <laughs> could you get your hands off that thing? It's going to go through it, you know? Um, and I had a lot going on. I had one who was really mm-hmm. sick. And so every time it was bittersweet. Yeah. It's amazing. I think it's just part of the reason that I, I'm doing this podcast is because as providers, we bring our own baggage to the table as well and our own expectations. And sometimes we need to reflect on how we come across. And I know I'm guilty of it as well because I'm human, right? Which is another part of what it is. When you, like you were mentioning, when you had that doctor that couldn't hear you say, can we wait? And somebody else would interpret that as bigger than it was or a reason to not trust that provider. Barrier. But that provi- Yeah, a barrier. Exactly. And also, it's what we're bringing to the table. You have to kind of just meet people where they're at, you know? So everybody's going to have something that they're bringing to the table that may not be what we want to bring with us. Yeah. That may or may not cause a reaction in somebody else. And so it's not something that we can all necessarily fix. I mean, that provider can't necessarily hear in certain situations, especially in the delivery room that's loud and probably. <laughs> I mean, I think it's you know, a little bit and, unfair. I probably exaggerate the story a little bit. You know well, what I mean? Like, but I mean, you could hear, but. 
I work with people that do have caring impairments and we, that doesn't mean they can't practice. They're excellent clinicians. It just means speak in the right ear, not the left, you know, or maybe say it loud or make sure that they can hear you make eye contact, do all the things you need to do, be aware. And, but everybody's got something. Everybody's bringing something to the table that brings an extra challenge. And what needs to happen is self-reflection. Everybody has the power to self-reflection. And if somebody points out something that you're bringing to the table that you weren't aware of, or if you realize you're bringing something to the table that you weren't aware of, then to use your powers of self-reflection to find out how to make it better for everyone. That's all we can control. And so I think that part of what I want birthing people and healthcare providers to gather from what I'm doing is to begin that self-reflection and see where we can all come together and work together in order to make birth less traumatic for all of us because it's it's traumatic for the providers as well. And so then we bring that baggage too. Mm. Like you were talking about, from one birth to the next, you had the experience completely do a 180 for the, the rest of your births. That happens to providers and that's where we're coming from. Oh, that's interesting. That happens to providers. Because what should be a natural process, if you meet the criteria for a natural birth, or if you meet the criteria for a home birth, those providers, most of the time, maybe all of the time, depending on your circumstances, see 100% perfect, no problems. But what we see in a hospital with a NICU, we trend towards the complex because we are helping those people that have those complexities have the safest birth with the best outcome. And so that is where, that is what we bring to the table. Those are the skewed values that we bring to the table. And there's, I think there's space for all of it, as long as we are reflective of where all of the things that we are saying and doing are coming from. So it's a lot of work to figure out where it's all coming from and how you can come to the table in the most meaningful way. But I think we need to start doing it because we are all coming with trauma. And if we don't address it, it's all just going to continue to cause negative experiences that we're all just sitting on and not doing anything about. The, so the negative experience for both the provider and for the parent. And it's, yeah. And it's so, I guess, from my perspective, for myself as well, but it's so sad to not just enjoy it. Such yeah. a glorious moment. Yeah. Right. And I do think probably the thing that's missing from when I'm talking is it was glorious. Right. And that's not what my focus is because I'm probably because I feel a little guilty that any of them were glorious when one wasn't. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. So but also that that was my own true feeling in the moment. But that absolutely for each one of them, even, you know, the, the one that was in the NICU with tubes going through her, you know, you sat next to her and just held her little foot and thought beautiful thoughts like there it's just there's really nothing like it yeah. right there's just nothing and like there it. Are, there is beauty in all those moments and that's i mean that's essentially life life is bittersweet but Wait, that's right how do we work to reframe everything that we go through so that we're not making it worse yeah and that's right. what you're trying to do that's a challenge trying to and so just in yeah without belaboring the whole thing so then i had four girls Mm -hmm. And the first handful of years were sort of, they were kind of fine. Like, because I guess, because I was so focused on, in a way, I was so focused that the, the sick one needed a lot of attention. The other four were girls. They were pretty good. Mm -hmm. We were always at home mm -hmm. and it went reasonably well. And 
like my big joke was that the boy would come over and mix the Play-Doh and I'd be like, he mixes Play-Doh? You don't mix the Play-Doh colors. Right. right. <laughs> and uh, even. <laughs> it's so funny. And then the dark years sort of came as they got into their tween years. And the one that was, the three that are the same are all kind of these natural athletes. And if you're a natural athlete and you're naturally social, your social life comes along pretty easily and school comes pretty easily. And with her, she couldn't even... She was, she could never even really go to school full time because, you know, she'd go to the hospital and be sick and then this and then that. So none of those things came as easy. And so then that created a whole host of issues for her who's sandwiched between all these kids. And so all of them reacted to that. And I wish I didn't done it all differently. I was just doing the best I could to keep my head above water. And so, and part of that is my own trauma. Part of that is the situation. Part of that is mm -hmm. everything. So I think I got to the point where I just, and I, my trauma probably exacerbates the feelings of regret that I have, mm -hmm. right? And thinking I could do it better because I was able to plow through life and do well despite it all. And it's very different when you have children. It's just very, you can't make them. You yeah. can try to make them, but you can't. And mm -hmm. so I had this feeling of like, I'm sure I have something to offer parents. And so I don't really think I knew what it was. And I, so I started it by being a parent coach and I did these things called microstep minutes because I wanted to people to understand the brain science because when I started to understand the brain science because of my own mindfulness, my own cognitive behavioral therapy and child development. And I started to put it all together. It just made parenting so much more clear, which is still hard if you have trauma, but at least I understood mm -hmm. why. Because I didn't really understand the difference between holding limits and being respectful of them. Like if I'm supposed to be respectful, aren't I supposed to let them go to the party? Right? So it, it, it sounds so dumb for someone who's bright, but that someone who's bright couldn't get it says yeah. a lot for how tough it is, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And when you throw in your own trauma and the fact that you're driving kids everywhere and doing the best that you can. And so I did these micro step minutes that were just sort of like, here's what goes wrong. Here's a bit of brain science. Try this today. And I'd be like, you know, try just biting your tongue for five, one minute, 60 seconds, see what happens. It's not a good example, but that's kind of what it looked like. Mm -hmm. And what I've done is I've taken those and I've put them into a book, but I've mm. changed it slightly. There's the problem. Then there's a script for sort of what not to do, what we sort of, what, what our fight or flight has us do. Yeah. Then I say what we could try instead and I explain the brain science of it. And then I do, I give like five sections that are based around the needs of kids, limits and autonomy and safety and connection. And, and then I do an anecdote at the beginning of each. That's a story of mine mm. with my kids. And I explain the concept of safety using an example that I had with a child. Yeah. I'm pretty like, what's the word? You know, I pick on myself easily. What's the word I'm looking for? Self. Yeah. Self-deprecating. Uh, Self-deprecating. <laughs> Sorry. I couldn't think of the word. So it's, it's fairly authentic and self-deprecating, bit of humor. And so that's how I've gotten into what I've gotten into. When did you start? I mean, I, I think just listening to you, I'm like, how on earth did you have time for a career? I didn't. So I didn't start. I started around COVID, in fact, a little before COVID. Ooh. So by the time the kids were end of high school, two were maybe already gone into college, you know, so six years ago-ish, you know, and I'd been do I'd done a ton of reading already. So as yeah. they got older, I did a ton of reading. I had all my own therapy. So while I wasn't doing it, I was actually learning a tremendous amount and then learning yeah. about childhood development. All of my kids will need therapy, I'm sure, for the rest of their lives. But the one who with the medical Everybody issues does. really suffered. 
And so I did a lot of research around that and why, what was going on, not only for the anxiety and for the depression, but just what's happening in family systems. So in a way I was doing my own studying. And then for some reason, I kind of thought I had to have my own framework, which you don't have to have to become a coach, but I kind of made my own framework. But that's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm stuck on that too right now too. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to I'm make like wanting to make a framework for everything, but no, I can just, you know. Yeah. You can just do. You can just do and yeah. it might come to you. Whereas I sort of yeah. pushed that a little bit. And that's, and then because I really felt I wanted to write a book, it sort of came together. I then had to articulate it more, more clearly. Yeah. I didn't have to just use it in the coaching. So then I, that's mm-hmm. why I now have a framework. Yeah. So I started it when they were older and you know, it's hard now because they're used to me really being available all the time and it's hard when I'm not and I get busy. I feel that. And the years are just little. Yeah. We had a talk yesterday. I, w- I took them to the park. I think maybe you'll appreciate this. I took them to the park and I was like, okay. So she, and my daughter said, can we go to dinner? And then can I get a toy? And I said, what? let's talk about what that's going to look like. Because in order to be able to do these things, where do you think it comes from? I'm not at work right now. So I'm not making money per se. But what could you do to help me so that in the future, we're going to have the ability to pay for these things that you're wanting? Can you maybe make sure that I don't have to remind you a thousand times to clean your room? And can you maybe, you know, while I'm sitting at the park bench trying to work on this one thing that I need to work on to in the future make money with this business that I'm building. <laughs> Can you maybe make sure that you're not running off where I can't see you to take away my attention? <laughs> you know, so we've started talking about when I'm doing this, what does that mean for you? And what does that mean for our future? How good. And in a, in a way, I think that that's especially, you know, like for her and all the things that she wants to do in the future, I think that's going to empower her to understand how all those things work and maybe put it all together a little earlier than I did, you know? So, yeah. Very good, but you're starting a lot before me and you've got little kids. Good for you. Right. Well, I have help. <laughs> so so you that. should. I mean, so you should. And yeah. start. I mean, I yeah. I think it's a great, I think all kinds of parenting work. I mean, I, I actually I tried to, I worked a lot of my husband's business a bit, but life was pretty busy, mm-hmm. you know? So great. If yeah. you can, I say great. And it's great role modeling. I mean, you can, all any kind of parenting works, but it's great role modeling. Mm-hmm. Kids. Well, at this point, the kids just and the my husband just want me home instead of being at work 12 hours a day. So that's kind of where I'm like, well, that's going to take some time and that's going to take some planning and that's going to take some effort. And so I'm going to need from you guys to allow me to do that. And this is what the schedule is going to look like. You know, when you come home from school, you may have to come into the room and quietly give me a hug while I'm interviewing someone. And <laughs> that's what we're going to do. So and that's I mean, very and that's, responsible. And I think it's helpful for moms to not have that. I think we just put such a picture out there of what motherhood should look like. But I think the biggest part is like, like I was talking about self-reflection and communication and figuring out what you're bringing to the table and how to communicate that. Because that's the only thing that you can do is to communicate what you're bringing to the table. You can't control anybody else. It's true. true. Well, Mary, I am so excited for this book to come out. I'm glad I don't have to wait long. (laughs) No, you do not have to wait long. You can click on the link. (laughs) I love it. I'm so excited. Tomorrow, today. Are you going to do an audio book? So I kind of, I, to be honest, I didn't even look at it. I didn't even think about it. Like I, it, things, I, I ended up, I had a publisher, they went under. Then I had this kind of self-publishing. Like, first piece of advice, when you self-publish, get a quarterback that can quarterback. You just need a quarterback. Yeah. And I did not have a quarterback. Mm-hmm. This book does lend itself to an audiobook, I think, because they are my stories. Yeah. And then the script, there's a lot of scripts, so you can say it. And then you, another shout out on your podcast would be to tell people that I, especially in our area, that mm-hmm. I do presentations and I love to do presentations. Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, and do you do anything virtual? As I'll do, well? I'll like do virtual presentations. I like them in person because I feel like the audience is a little more engaged, but I sort of have come up with ways to make it a little more engaging so that people, you know, stick on yeah. the virtual ones. But I did all virtual through um, COVID. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love to do presentations and I do like I'm doing a couple on resilience next week locally and then I'm doing them for the local PTAs all the time and some businesses but um if you have any parent group it's just a great thing yeah. and I can do it just yeah. so I can I also now have kind of a classic one what, what the micro step method is and how to start it and I mean for a working parent if you're all parents it's just like how can I take how can I take advantage of a moment and, yes exactly and <laughs> and helping to live do my it. life <laughs> Yeah. And interestingly, and I haven't written anything on this, and I actually haven't read anything on it, but someone mentioned to me the other day that there's a big sort of discussion going on on social media of scripts versus not scripts for parents. I don't know if you've seen it. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, you know, people shouldn't be giving scripts to parents to read to their kids. And what has occurred to me, because I originally wrote, I didn't like scripts. I never wanted scripts. Mm-hmm. Like, I was like, mm-hmm. I don't need scripts. I know how to talk. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely could have used them. But is that some people don't need them. They've had perfectly normal mm-hmm. parenting, right? And they grew up mm-hmm. or perfectly normal childhood, right? They don't need it. They're not. Mm-hmm. The, the normal thing comes out. Oh, you want a toy? That sounds like a fun to get a toy. Yeah, we're not going to get a toy today. Instead of like, ooh, my terrible mother if we don't get a toy, right? right. Two completely yeah. different responses. And so my original blog didn't have a lot of scripts. But I, mm-hmm. as I ran it past people, when I did have scripts, they were like, oh, I love the scripts. So now every yeah. one of them has scripts. But I think if you have trauma, if you're mm-hmm. someone who goes into fight or flight, you mm-hmm. need scripts. You because do. as you know, your thinking brain is nowhere to be found. And all the kid right. has done is gotten a B on his math test. Right. But your yeah, you thinking brain has gone out the window and you're like, well, how did that happen? How come we didn't study more? Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? You're never going to get into algebra. Whereas the person who doesn't go into fight or flight, oh, they got to be, what went on? What do you think went wrong? Huh? Mm-hmm. What do you think you're going to do differently next time? But I noticed you really studied hard last night. Great job. But if mm-hmm. you have trauma or you're triggered, which is always not always trauma, sometimes you're just triggered because you have mm-hmm. fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really helps to be like, oh my God, what am I supposed to say? Oh yeah, I'm just supposed to empathize. Huh? What was right. that like? And then and- there's all this shame about like what my brain is doing, but literally folks, the blood is going to a different part of your brain. That's all that's happening. It is a natural human response because before all of this evolution has taken place, we were being chased by tigers. And of course we want our brain, our blood to shunt to the place that makes us run away. That's what we want, right? So it's a completely natural response. It's nothing to feel guilty about. However, we need to know how to override that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complex. And the yeah. scripts do help. I need scripts. I'm all about that. I My brain goes all sorts of places. Oof, and if God. I just have something to say while my brain's doing all the things, if I can... That's exact. Even if you're not fully in their shoes, which you're supposed to be, right? Mm. Even though you're not supposed to be, yeah. which is helpful. In those moments when you are really in their shoes, you know, don't touch the hot stove. You're like, I know you really want to touch that stove. It looks like so much fun to burn your teddy bear in mm-hmm. that flame. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. But the answer is no. It's because you're not in anything, right? But in the moment that you are, I love what you say. It may not be fully empathetic, but at least you get the words out. Yes. And that's all that matters. <laughs> the and then the you right words. So that you're not later. traumatizing your child. So that they're not doing this later down the road with your grandchildren. Exactly. The scripts are for cycle breaking, essentially. It's exactly. <laughs> you got you to gotta get it from somewhere. 
and the words don't come to me. Some of us are just not words people. <laughs> so I, I appreciate it. Yeah, that's right. And and because you're you're stressing, something's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's been great. And I love what you're doing. And um, well, it's been really wonderful talking to you. Yeah, I enjoyed the I, I enjoyed these birth stories. And maybe your mom can come tell your birth story, which is what originally you were trying to tell us. Yeah, exactly. Now I need that one. Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> yeah. I definitely was a mistake. I'm sure she was like, oh, my, I'm so a, was I'm I. A, it's all good. I'm a, ah, what's it called when you're born under 12 months? I can't think of any of my words today. Oh, Irish is, twins? I'm an Irish twin. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no way my mother wanted to be pregnant with a two month old. Yeah. So she was yeah. probably like, get this baby out of me mm-hmm. and was thrilled when I was like, perfect. I mean, mm-hmm. like I was the, yeah. I was the, you know, to take the care of everybody one. person. So I'm yeah. sure she doesn't even yeah. remember my birth. You came out and I was happy. Yeah. You came out and I was happy. And <laughs> what do I have to do next? Story. I was yeah. number four or five. They were all pretty close. Ooh. All right. Wow. So, well, that's it, I think, right? Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really fun. And I, I can't wait to read your book. Well, that's very kind of you. And yeah, so everyone should grab a copy. We'll put some kind of link yeah. in. And yeah, um, absolutely. Just, you know, come and join me. Thank you so much for tuning into my podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. Don't forget to share the podcast with a friend who can benefit from the valuable insights that we share here. And if you could take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review, it would mean the world to me. If you're ready to work one-on-one with me to embark on a transformational journey towards a confident and empowered hospital birth experience, go to kellyhoff.com backslash empowered and enroll in my Empowered Hospital Birth Coaching Program. Together, we'll create a roadmap to a birth experience that you'll cherish forever. That's K-E-L-L-Y-H-O-F dot com backslash empowered. Let's make your birth experience extraordinary.